The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world, and it's exploding across the Americas. It is now a leading supplier across that region as well, with more than three gigawatts shipped in the past two years. It has the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter. SunGrow is providing the best-in-class disruptive technology for utility-scale solar and battery projects. Uh, That also includes helping power Apple's headquarters. Find out more at www.sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I am Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Thanks a lot for being here. This week, financial turmoil at one of the nation's most iconic hydropower producers. The Bonneville Power Administration, the hulking public federal company that serves the Pacific Northwest, is facing a strong current of problems. Cheap renewables are making hydro less competitive in the region. BPA is now bleeding money and there's concern that its utility customers will stop buying hydro when their contracts are up. Meanwhile, the cost of rehabilitating salmon populations is mounting, and so too is political pressure to abandon some dams. What is going to happen to BPA? We will talk to a reporter who's been digging deep into this story. Then, the kids are all right. Climate strikes swept the globe last Friday, raising unprecedented media coverage and causing hysteria among crusty old conservative commentators. Is this different from previous mobilizations around climate. Finally, offshore wind is getting so cheap in Europe. It's now set to compete with existing gas seven years ahead of schedule. We'll venture out to the leading edge of offshore wind development. I am here alongside my co-hosts. They are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She is in the fine city of Washington, D.C. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Jigger Shaw is uh, back on the East Coast after some travel. He's just outside of D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. He's the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey. So you were both on stage last night at this event. I had a little bit of FOMO. I saw that you both were invited as members of the Energy Gang, but I was not there on stage. What were you doing there? We were uh, dispensing some wisdom to a mostly conservative crowd, I would say. Nice. And how do they respond to what, what you were saying? I think we had a lot of fans in the audience. I thought it was great. It's part of National Clean Energy Week, which I think is a good idea. It's being led by the more conservative uh, sort of funders. But ultimately, I think it's featuring all clean energy technologies this week. Yeah, what I love about this show is that because we approach a lot of these topics from a business angle, we tend to attract a lot of people across the political spectrum. So that's one of the joys of doing this show. Although you've both done a few events together now, and I've been not on stage with you. I've been holed up in my undisclosed East Boston location with my baby and a laptop. Very reclusive I am. Yeah, well... I'm like the J.D. Salinger of the podcasting world. <laughs> and we really do think of it as Energy Gang light when you're not there. <laughs> well, we're going Energy Gang heavy today because we have another guest. It is Jeremy P. Jacobs. He's a reporter at e News. He has been swimming in this story about the Bonneville Power Administration And he's in the middle of this multi-part series on the future of the hydro provider. He joins us at the crack of dawn from a studio in Santa Barbara, California. Jeremy, hello. Thanks for being here with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. As you've reported, the Bonneville Power Administration is facing $15 billion in debt. It's, It's racked up a lot of debt in the last decade. It's facing a few serious challenges all at once. Cheap renewables 
expensive ecosystem, wildlife habitat remediation, and increasingly political pressure to change. Although that political pressure is, you know, it's it's brewing, it's kind of minimal, but like, I think it's changing the dynamic for the power provider. I want to get to all those. But first, what is BPA and why should we care about it? Sure. Uh, that's a good question that my parents ask me. Um, <laughs> the, the Bonneville Power Administration is one of four what are called public marketing uh, administrations or, or agencies or PMAs. Um, it was set up, it's a New Deal era program uh, that was set up in the after the Great Depression. Um, and the idea was to bring electricity or cheap electricity uh, to rural areas of uh, the country and then sell it at cost. I mean, it's a, it, it, this is a program that uh, now would be, you know, criticized as socialism. Um, but it, it helped bring the country out of depression by building dams, uh, including uh, the biggest one in the country, Grand Coulee, uh, in Washington state. Um, and ultimately, uh, Congress created uh, Bonneville Power in 1937 to sell the power at cost uh, to uh, utilities in the region. Um, and so now, um, now Bonneville Power markets energy from 31 hydro dams and one nuclear nuclear plant uh, to utilities throughout the Northwest. Um, and the idea was that this cheap power uh, would, would, would fuel the growth of the region. It is amazing what 70 years will do. This is a project or a series of dams and a power producer that's provided pretty extraordinary economic value for the Pacific Northwest. And uh, today, a project of this scope supported by the government, like it was through the New Deal, would would definitely be <laughs> politically controversial. But uh, BPA is not controversial because of its history, its status as a government entity, its economic value to the Pacific Northwest. It has had really strong support from government. Catherine, how is v- BPA viewed in the political world? Absolute bipartisan support. There is only one crack in that, which is from uh, Congressman Mike Simpson, a Republican from Idaho, who is very worried about the issue of the fish. But other than that, it has it is really a cultural touchstone for the Pacific Northwest. Uh, 75 years ago, Woody Guthrie was commissioned by Bonneville to write 26 songs. They're called the Columbia River Songs. And he wrote Roll on Columbia, The Biggest Thing Man Has Ever Done, The Great Cooley Dam. I mean, it is... These songs became such a part of the culture of that area. And like you said, it was about jobs, but it was about irrigation for crops. Because remember, a lot of these people are coming out of the Dust Bowl. They had nothing. The The ground was bare. Um, it provided electricity and jobs and irrigation and was really seen as the way for that part of the country to have economic development. So it has, over the years, had much, much bipartisan support. And I don't think that that wanes necessarily. I think that um, with that bipartisan support, there's also an opportunity to make some changes and try to make sure that it survives. I think I heard uh, Jiggerhead roll on Columbia as his ringtone. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jeremy, BPA has operated in a mostly steady state for the last 70 years, right? That that stability is, is changing. It's shifting. What has changed today? What are the factors that you have been outlining in your reporting that have caused some 
financial concerns, financial distress, distress for BPA. Yeah, I, just to pick up uh, on what you're saying about the political support, I, I completely agree. You know, until Mike Simpson's speech recently, I mean, there was there have been a couple bills where the delegation has split a little bit, uh, but 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 by and large, this has been they just enjoy uh, a support in the region, uh, kind of unwavering support. Um, but uh, you know, times are changing, and just because I would say that just because they enjoy this support doesn't mean it's necessarily warranted. So times are changing. How? How are times changing? Well, Bonneville Power sells more than twice the amount of power uh, than the region needs. So one way that it has historically kept its rates so low is it sells that surplus power on the, on the open wholesale market, um, particularly to California, uh, who bought um, a lot of that power up until 2008. In 2008, uh, California started investing in wind and solar, and all of a sudden it didn't need Bonneville's power nearly as much. So between wind and solar coming online, as well as the natural gas revolution, uh, the wholesale energy market prices started plunging fast uh, around 2008, 2009. And so BPA's surplus sales weren't there anymore. And so its rate for its primary customers started climbing quickly. Uh, it's, been, it's gone up 30% uh, since 2008. And now it sells uh, power to its primary customers at about $35 or $36 per megawatt hour. Uh, on the open market, it's about $20 or $21. In fact, Los Angeles just signed a 25-year deal um, for, from the, for the largest uh, solar deal uh, for $20 a megawatt hour for 25 years. Um, so that has eaten in to the surplus money that BPA has relied on uh, for decades. Okay, so Jigger, how dire is this situation at BPA? And if we just look at these market conditions, what's happening in wholesale markets, um, what does this tell us about BPA's future. Uh, BPA has kind of pushed back, and we can talk about some of that pushback, saying things aren't as bad as they sound, but the numbers suggest otherwise, and the conditions in the wholesale markets do not look good. They are definitely brutal. Um, How bad do you think things are? So I don't think things are bad at BPA from the perspective of being able to get themselves out of the jam. I think the problem is, is that the business as usual uh, business model has stopped working, right? So the ability to just sell the cheapest possible hydro uh, to constituents and pay for all the salmon restoration costs um, is falling apart, right? And I think that what they need to try to figure out is how to get more value out of the hydropower, right? Remember, hydropower is really flexible power. So, you know, even though they have a lot of environmental restrictions as, as to how they can use their dams, they actually can serve as storage, Uh, for the Western grid. They don't get paid for that today because they've never thought about trying to get paid for that. But they actually have that ability. Separately, they have extraordinary transmission corridors, right? When we think about what we talked about with Superpower and Mike Skelly, they could quadruple the amount of transmission capacity they have in their existing transmission corridors and actually build a ton more wind and solar Um, up in their territory and ship it down to California. So there's lots of things that they could do to add more value, but they have resisted at every turn, you know, any sort of change in their operations. Yeah, I would jump in on this too. Um, I spoke with someone who was very familiar with the energy system in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, 
look, this is not the first time the BPA has gone through stuff and they've never gone belly up. You know, they've... Um, in the Northwest Power and Conservation Act, they're required every five years to, and they're in the seventh one of these acts, to do energy efficiency and demand response. So they've taken on a lot of other kind of conservation issues. They have, as Jigger said, they have spent $17 billion over 40 years on fish. Um, and they're still, the Columbia River is still protected by the Endangered Species Act. So that still has not been resolved. And that's something that has to continue to be worked on. But they've also, during this, um, in the 70s, the Washington Public Power Supply System, otherwise known as WHOOPS, said they would build 10 10 nuclear plants and, and BPA guaranteed bonds. And they just finally finished paying those off or were still being paid off a few years ago. And out of those 10 nukes that they guaranteed, only one, Hanford, was built. Four of them were left only partially built. So Bonneville has taken a lot over the years and has had these these points at which everybody says, oh, no, what's going to happen? But they've never missed a debt payment. And that says something. Yeah. So uh, I, we almost named the series whoops, uh, <laughs> but thought that would be a little too much. Uh, the uh, um now, one quick point on the debt payment, and, and you guys may have more thoughts on this than I do, but you know, Bonville always touts that, that they always make their debt payment, which is true, they have, uh, but they also are misleading about how much that debt payment is. When they, Publicly, they'll talk about a $700 million debt payment, but that's only the payment they're making to the Treasury. They're still paying off those bonds. So I asked them, you know, how much do you pay? How much do you spend per year servicing your debt? And last in the last fiscal year, it was $1.56 billion. That's that's approaching 45% of their revenues. Um, so there are a lot of expenses, including that debt, uh, that, that are mounting on them. And I think in some of the pushback that we've received to the series and some of the op-eds we've seen since it's been running, uh, I think what they're looking for is, like Jigger said, is they want the FISH program off their backs. Um, and I think that's some of the um, um, some of what they'll be looking for as this unfolds. Well, but I, I, I want to make sure we're being a little bit cautious about this, right? So Generate Capital looks at hydro projects all the time. Hydro actually is a technology where you can easily get 80, 90 percent debt against your revenue streams. So the fact that they've got 45, 46 percent of their revenue streams going to paying debt service is totally normal. For hydro, so I don't think that they're abnormal. I think the challenge with BPA is that they have these contracts at thirty-six dollars a megawatt hour. Those contracts were signed in two thousand eight. They're all, you know, expiring in two thousand and twenty-eight, and wholesale market prices are trading at twenty-two dollars a megawatt hour. So you would assume that people are not going to renew their contracts at the end of twenty twenty-eight. And so the question becomes: How do they make their power worth $36 a megawatt hour. And I think that's super easy to do with advanced, you know, approaches to value pricing electricity. Because hydro can supply power on an interruptible basis, right? They could say to people, hey, we don't want to ship you power when prices are negative in the California ISO, and we do want to ship you power when they're not, right? So there's lots of ways for them to also play a key role, for instance, in this broadening of the California ISO to a larger independent system operator that includes Nevada and Oregon. So I think there's tons of things that they could do in the next eight or nine years to save themselves from these contracts that are expiring, but they actually have to proactively before 
all of these changes. And so far, BPA has largely been against most of these changes to the grid. Jeremy, to the contract question first, how serious is this threat that, you know, by 2028, utility customers would decide not to re-up their contracts and they'll go procure power that's way cheaper from somewhere else, most likely wind and solar power. Um, Is that a threat that they're taking seriously? It is, I think, and they've said, and they've said so. And, and I've talked to some of their customers, and um, and, and they've sort of said that there are ways, kind of like what Jigger was saying, uh, that there are ways uh, that they could package products and that that'll help them remain competitive uh, in the marketplace. But but it's important to note that uh, of their customers, it doesn't take many leaving, or it, it really only takes one or two leaving to create a, a, a big problem from them, uh, and, and so. And it's almost, you know, 2028, if things haven't changed, it's almost financially irresponsible for them not to be considering uh, buying elsewhere. Um, And, you know, I talked to one economist uh, who said that even if one leaves, it puts more pressure on the rate to go up again and then leading more to leave. And he called that a death spiral. Um, So it doesn't it doesn't take many um, for the, to create major problems for them. So one thing I would just note about hydropower is a lot of these dams are really, really old, and yet they are fixable So and refurbishable. So I visited Voith Hydro a couple of years ago up in Pennsylvania, and they said about 95% of their work was just refurbishing. And at the time, I got to see them working on a 100-year-old blade. And these dams provide emission-free electricity. Um, we need to watch out for our rivers and make sure that we have plans for for fish and saving salmon. But we also need to not lose all of this carbon-free electricity and that Jigger says provides a lot of other services. So enabling them to repair, this is like a right to repair issue. Like let's fix the dams that need fixing that doesn't mean you have to build new dams everywhere, but at least let's keep the ones going that we have and that are working and let them uh, let them get paid for what they do. Bonneville will say that one of their long, they kind of have this long game about it being carbon-free power and that they think other states like Washington's pledge by 2045 to be carbon-free, uh, have carbon-free generation. Um, they think that, that that hydropower will become more valuable over time. The Los Angeles deal, they have the same goal you know, kind of cuts against that a little bit. Um, but but you're right. Uh, these dams do take a lot of money um, to upgrade and maintain uh, up to $300 million a year in the coming years. Uh, but the part, but part of that is also they need the capital to do that. Um, and right now, all the, their financing for that is coming through debt um, and looks like will continue coming through debt. So what are the policy interventions here on the positive side then? So you have... More states trying to get 100% clean energy, 100% renewable energy by the middle of the century. That will certainly provide a big framework in which BPA can say, hey, we have all this clean power. Like, Let us sell sell you this electricity. Uh, there are probably other market reforms that need to happen to make hydropower more valuable, as Jigger outlined it. So the question is, what are those policy interventions? Catherine, what might they be? Um. Well, I think one of the things is in the wholesale markets, allowing them to um, get compensated for other types of services, ancillary services and, you know, storage services and paying them for what it's worth. And we, Jigger and I, at this event last night, spoke to some folks in the hydropower industry, and that was their main 
their main takeaway from that conversation was that throughout the country that hydropower is not getting paid for the services that it provides. The other thing is that they don't get a tax credit. So that was another piece that these folks were telling us is as other renewable energy technologies are getting tax credits, hydropower does not. Well, I mean, I think that part of that is their own problem. For a long time, the large hydro folks didn't think that tax credits were needed. Now that they realize that they are needed, they were sort of late to the party. But I, I look, I think that on the policy side, we're not talking about policy changes from the federal government. We're really talking about policy changes from within BPA. Remember, BPA has fought tooth and nail against wind farms in the Northwest, saying that it would destabilize their grid and that kind of thing. We had to prove them wrong over four or five years worth of technical work. And they now are begrudgingly saying, yeah, I guess we could accommodate this. In 2008, uh, Sun Edison worked really hard to create the ideal contract with WAPA, the Western Area Power Administration that, that sells Hoover Dam power, and um, and we solved the problem. So WAPA now has the ability to buy wind and solar and then sell it to their municipalities. We offered the same contract to BPA, and they just laughed us out of the room, and so there was no way that we were going to do anything like this. And the congressional delegations and senators all said the same thing. So I put it on them, right? I mean, ultimately, if BPA ends up failing and having to get bailed out by the federal government, it's because they are not pushing BPA to allow for innovation within their territory. Frankly, by the way, this is also a problem with the Tennessee Valley Authority. So this is not just a BPA problem. It's all of the federal, federally chartered you know, uh, agencies are saying, we just want to do things like we did in the 1970s. Why are you ask, asking us to change? So let's talk about this Republican congressman from Idaho named Mike Simpson, who you mentioned. He's one of the few voices that has come out and said, hey, I think we need to consider breaking up BPA's operations. Um, I, I think he's worried about the financial condition of the power provider. What exactly are his criticisms? And um, is he going to put any meaningful pe- pressure on them in any way? Or is he just one lone voice out there among many people who are resoundingly supporting BPA? Mike Simpson is a really interesting character in all this, uh, and he is probably the main reason uh, we started reporting on it. Um, this is a guy who is a conservative Republican uh, from Idaho. Uh, he was a member of Republican congressional leadership in the House, uh, was on the appropri- has been on the Appropriations Committee for, for years, um, and he has kind of multiple problems with this system. Uh, one is that he does, he has this, um, appreciation or love of salmon, uh, and that they return to Idaho. Uh, another is that Idaho has to send water down as part of the federal mitigation for the fish. Idaho has to release all, a bunch of water down through the dams uh, in order to cool the water to protect the fish downstream uh, as they go through the hydro system in Washington. Um, that's water that Mike Simpson believes could be used elsewhere, such as by irrigators. Um, and I think that from a fiscally conservative position uh, or perspective, uh, he has issues with how BPA has managed their books. Um, so he gave a speech in April uh, in which he was the first person, I, I think, ever uh, in the congressional delegation to stand up and say, 
Bonneville Power has some serious problems. And then he has since gone on to say they're going bankrupt and they're going broke. Uh, now, of course, Bonneville takes major issues with that, uh, just like they've taken issues with uh, our reporting on it. Uh, but you know, he's, he's sort of stood up and said, we need to fix this problem or else... Uh, it's somehow going to get fixed for us and we won't like the results. Um, and so that's, he's taking it on and, and he has a history of taking on kind of complex conservation and, and, and uh, um, environmental issues over his career. Sometimes it take 10 or 15 years. Um, and he's obsessed with this right now. So what exactly are the range of things that Bonneville is pushing back on? Like, why are they so critical of the way the problems are characterized? Well, they don't like being told they're in such dire financial straits. Um, And they don't like it when you if you point out that maybe the steps they're taking aren't enough to rectify their financial state. Uh, You know, they have... They put out a 2018 five-year, 10-year strategic plan that outlined steps they wanted to take. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of a it's a mixed bag on how you view that. You, you could view it as, yes, they're taking steps to rectify the problems uh, and they're exploring new ways to sell their power that will generate, that they estimate will generate around $30 million a year and, and, and that they're going to do other things as well to work with their customers to make sure they don't leave in 2028 when their contracts end. Um, on the on the other hand, uh, whether that is enough is 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 a big open question. Some credit agencies have said it's not, um, and uh, it, it sort of remains to be seen. Uh, but but Bonneville has has enjoyed such strong support over the years that I think they'd prefer to just be left alone as they try to sort out these issues. So what are you following now with the story? You're in the middle of this series. What are you reporting out currently? And like. How do you think the story will play out beyond the series you're developing? So that's a great question. And and let's start with how I got into the story. And maybe we can kind of go from there. Um, So 2016, uh, a few years ago, I was working on a story about dams and and, and infrastructure and problems that were happening that was spurred by uh, a a near catastrophe at Oroville Dam in Northern California. Um, And that ended up being a multi-part series as well. Um, And as Right around the same time, there was this ruling uh, from a dist- federal district judge in uh, Oregon um, regarding Bonneville's dams and the hydropower program and the fish mitigation program. And it- it's almost a 150-page tongue-lashing about how this has been managed. Uh, and it's really strong language for coming from a court. And it's the fifth time their fish management program has been ruled against uh, or struck down uh, by a court. So I had this sort of in the back of my head that just from a legal perspective, like, wow, this is a uh, this is quite an opinion. Uh, and it's the longest running. You know, this is the most expensive endangered species program uh, in the country. It's the longest running uh, endangered species litigation in the country. So there's all these superlatives. And I sort of had this idea that we do a story on it, but I never got to it. Uh, so I put a pin in it and it kind of almost forgot about it. And then Mike Simpson's speech happened in April. Uh, or Mike Simpson gave his speech in April. And I started digging in a little bit and realized there's all these financial complexities uh, 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 going on as well. So that ruling really focuses on four dams on the Lower Snake River in eastern Washington, right up to the border with Idaho. Um, These are four dams that sit in the middle of the system, uh, produce a 
modest amount, I guess you would probably say, uh, of hydropower, but their their economic value is somewhat questioned. It's somewhat questionable, and they have a really detrimental effect on fish. Uh, they because of them, f- salmon and steelhead have to cross eight dams to get to the ocean, eight dams to come back to Idaho. You take out those four dams, the journey becomes a little bit more manageable for them. Um, so to get to the question, I guess, the, the, we're going to look a little bit at those four dams uh, a little more closely, including the economics of them um, and whether uh, they're money makers for Bonneville uh, or not. I suspect another wrinkle to all of this is climate change and the fact that the waters are warming and it's not going to get any easier for the salmon. Well, that's the I mean, that's the tragedy of this whole thing is that they've spent 17 billion dollars and the salmon are basically being prevented from going extinct, as the article says, as opposed to uh, flourishing. And so we're just, you know, basically pausing the inevitable. But, you know, I'd say that the only way a political deal gets done in my book is if BPA actually changes its entire mission, which is to integrate, you know, carbon-free technologies such that we can enable a 100% clean energy future. They are uniquely qualified, as is TVA, Salt River Project, WAPA, and others, to actually play this glue function uh, with their transmission, with their hydro, and with their balance sheet to basically enable the 100% clean electricity uh, goals to occur far faster. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't know that I would support any of these like sort of policy changes um, without, you know, changing their mandate entirely. Uh, this was a great series, Jeremy. We're so glad to have you on. Uh, Jeremy Jacobs is a reporter with E&E News Greenwire. Uh, he has been digging into this story for a long time, and the, and the, the series is ongoing. So we're going to provide the links to the first three pieces that are out now in the show notes. And uh, we certainly appreciate your time. Thanks for the good reporting. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow has 87 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, and it's now growing rapidly in the U.S., working with some of the largest companies at the cutting edge of renewable energy procurement. When Apple announced its operations were powered by 100% renewable energy in 2018, CEO Tim Cook said the tech giant is going to go further, and they're going to push the envelope on forward-looking uses of renewables. One of the ways Apple is doing that is with a 250-megawatt facility in Boulder, Nevada. Swinterton Renewables built the plant with SunGrow inverters, trackers from NextTracker, and cutting-edge bifacial modules. As part of the project, 5 megawatts will be available to NV Energy customers to subscribe so that they can take part in the project, too. So it's going to a tech giant and going straight to customers. SunGrow isn't just innovating when it comes to bifacial. The company is also heavily invested with energy storage, with its energy storage inverters integrated into more than 200 megawatt hours of projects across the U.S. Find out more about the company's solar and storage inverters at sungrowpower.com. If you were born after 1985, you've never experienced a month that is cooler than the 20th century average. If you were born in the early 2000s, you're coming of age at a time when temperature and extreme weather records are getting shattered and the predictions for your future are kind of bleak. Even if you don't buy into the whole, we have 12 years to save the world, hysteria, and a lot of people call it hysteria because it's an interpretation of a UN report. It's abundantly clear for Gen Zers that this is no longer a problem we have to care about for future generations. It is a matter of addressing the most devastating impacts for people living 
on the planet right now. And that is why the climate youth movement has exploded. Last Friday, the climate strike brought an estimated 4 million people into the streets around the world with kids front and center, uh, many skipping school in order to send a message. And on Monday, Greta Thunberg delivered her message straight to the United Nations in a scathing speech. This has pulled in a ton of media attention, even during an incredibly chaotic week for political journalism. Um, even, you know, during this whole impeachment debacle unfolds, we're still seeing many outlets cover the climate protests and talk about climate change in a, in a unique way. So why is this moment different? Um, Catherine, how significant was this particular global event? We've had so many climate protests in the past, in particular in 2014, when we had this massive gathering in New York City. Why is this different? Why are people paying attention differently? Well, the numbers are bigger, so it's over 4 million. It very much is around the world. It is very much led by the by young people, but it's also focused at the people who need to make the change, which are our global leaders and those who control energy resources and corporations. So it's very much focused at you all need to figure out how to fix this because it's affecting us. I think it's amazing what they've been able to do and what Greta, you know, a year ago was just alone um, out there protesting in front of the Swedish parliament and now has millions of people. That's not to say young people haven't been engaged before. And there were there have been several activists I would just want to throw out there, too, that are other young people who've been working on these issues. One is Autumn Peltier, who's a water activist, has been working since she was eight years old and last year gave a speech to the new year to the UN. Little Miss Flint, when she was eight years old, wrote a letter to President Obama about the Flint crisis. And as a result, they got $100 million in grants from the federal government. Z.A. Bastida, I'm sure I said her name wrong, is of Mexican heritage, is now living in the U.S. and has been working for four years on Fridays for Future. These are young people who, you know, young people, and I have four children, so I know this, they don't they they worry about things. They're not fearful. Adults can't say to them, sit down and be quiet. They are fearless. And I think that's great. Jigger, what was different this time around? Well, I don't know if anything's different, right? I mean, I think, you know, for those of us who've been following this for a long time, I mean, Severin uh, Suzuki gave this impassioned speech when she was 12 or 13 at Rio in 1992, admonishing all of the folks in the crowd, right? And so, and that was a big point back then. I think... There have been young people who have made these impassioned appeals. There's clearly young people who are suing the state of Washington and Oregon and now the federal government, um, you know, and then that's winding through the courts. And so there's lots of these examples of people doing great stuff. Clearly, Greta has brought a level of fierceness to the battle, which I think is just so abrupt and so sort of on point that it's getting, you know, outsized coverage. Um, but, but I, you know, I think this all has to be tied to, you know, the next three to five years and seeing whether people are actually willing to make the hard decisions. I think as Jay Inslee's talked about in his campaign, these are big deals. But separately, when we talked about Bonneville Power Administration, I mean, Jay Inslee is one of the people who, you know, prevented some of these changes of, from occurring at Bonneville Power Administration. So, like, we're in this weird place right now where people have to show real leadership. And if Greta 
um, has inspired them to show real leadership, you know, then their actions will prove that out over the next few years. I do think that there's something different here. And that's that the storyline has changed. So I'm a big believer that you need heroes and villains in order to capture people's attention. And it's not about some big story about generational problems that's going to capture people's attention. It's one individual who represents those problems. Um, We saw the heroes and villains story play out around 2011, 2012, when like 350.org and other environmental groups said, Uh, you know what, this isn't about a climate bill. It's about stopping the Keystone Pipeline, right? And the Keystone Pipeline itself was uh, not that big a deal in terms of climate change. I mean, you could make the argument that, like, it was going to support some level of tar sands development, and that was really bad for the climate. But, like, ultimately, from a systematic perspective, it wasn't really a climate issue. It was about creating a villain, and it was a proxy for, uh, you know, climate action. And what it did was it got people talking in a different way. It changed the media narrative and it created some pretty serious momentum for the environmental movement at the time, which was suffering after the climate bill uh, faded away in 2010. Now, fast forward to now, of course, we've had this long history of great, strong young people standing up. Um, in fact, you know, kids in developing countries for the last eight years have been getting up and talking to people at UN climate conferences and talking about how their lives have been impacted or or will be impacted by climate change. So this is not new. But I think what Greta has done differently is that she has so much more forceful in her message and so much angrier in her message. It's created this really nice hero villain dynamic. And it's, it's perfect for the social media age as well. And so that captures people's attention in a very different way. And uh, although plenty of other kids have done what Greta has done, she just happens to be doing it really well. Yeah, and there was a really good piece by Al Gore, who, of course, has been working on this for decades, um, in last weekend's New York Times, where he said, you know, change happens really, really slowly. You think it'll never, you'll never hit a tipping point, and then it starts happening really quickly. And he thinks we're at that point, too. So 1,700 companies turned off their websites during uh, the climate strike. Um, 300 donated their profits. There are, you know, hundreds of new commitments to 100% renewables that represent something like $5.5 trillion worth of revenue. AT&T is going to double renewables to like 1.5 gigawatts of wind and solar and Amazon's buying hundreds of thousands of EVs. So there are corporations that are stepping up and it seems like some of this pressure from their employees is really having an impact. I I would caution though that um, Derwood Zelke, whom we I interviewed for another story we did on the Monica Uh, Montreal Protocols was quoted as saying, winning slowly is the same as losing, that we need to be on a war footing, and maybe this will get us there. Um, Let's listen to a clip from Greta. So this this protest dovetailed with a special UN climate summit in New York, where there was this really captivating interaction between Greta Thunberg and the world leaders there. That was on, on Monday of this week. Let's listen to a clip. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. 
entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? And what compelled me about this clip was, again, this like hero villain dynamic. Um, but what I think that they're 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 doing here, what Greta and, and and the whole youth movement is doing, is it's starting to shatter or challenge one of the psychological barriers that make it hard for us to do something bold on climate. So we discount future generations for our own benefit. It's just something we do. We discount the future as human beings for immediate reward. This doesn't allow us to do that. It puts us in such an uncomfortable place. And while I, I worry a little bit about the world is ending rhetoric that we're hearing, I do welcome young people getting in the faces of world leaders and saying enough is enough. This is the face of the people you're impacting. It's the most human and powerful way to change framing that I can think of. And and I think it addresses one of those psychological barriers and could potentially like change the way we think and talk about action today. Well, and I don't think global leaders are used to children shaming them. No, no. Well, but look, I, all I'm saying is that I totally hear the dynamic you guys are talking about, and I totally hear how awesome Greta might be. But all I'm saying is, is that there are real projects that are on the the drawing board right now that could go a long ways to solving climate change. And people have to sign some contracts, right? And so if things that were not going to happen yesterday happen tomorrow, then I'm happy to give her the Nobel Peace Prize. If nothing happens differently, then she will have just been another flash in the pan like all the other young people who have, you know, put their heart and soul on the line and, you know, got rebuffed by the bureaucracy. Uh, but but her job isn't to like the contracts are coming. That's the reason why this has force behind it. It's, you you hinted at this, or you explicitly called this out in our last episode with Russell Gold, that like the reason why this this message is resonating is because the contracts are getting signed. The business is happening. And so they have a leg to stand on. They're not just saying, they're not just like frightening people. There's also a positive vision for the future that they can point to that is playing out. And so oh, I, I don't think it's her responsibility. If if more stuff doesn't get done, it's it's not necessarily because of her. I think that like they have a leg to stand on because of all the great work that's happening today. I look, I totally agree with you. And I'm not saying that that she's not having an impact. I'm simply saying that that we won't know if this is a watershed moment. We won't know if this is different. We won't know that she's actually a more unique messenger that's caused this sort of ripple effect that actually creates, you know, lots of change until two years from now, right? I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world today where people actually do have a choice. Like, do I destroy more of the rainforests in Indonesia to build more palm oil? Do I, like, destroy more of the Amazon to to make more beef for the Chinese to to eat, right? Do I like figure out how to like reform BPA to actually figure out how to get to 100% clean energy? These are really tough, intractable problems, right? And and the question is whether she has shamed politicians to the point where they're actually willing to spend political capital to do the right thing. I think that that is playing out right now. I agree with we won't know from year until years from now, but think about how the Democrats have shifted on this issue. In one year, 
you have a small, scrappy environmental movement in the sun in the sunrise movement um, going from, you know, just talking about this like way far off Green New Deal to getting a prominent politician on their side to getting the whole Democratic Party talking about this stuff. You have a single girl uh, who helped alongside a lot of other environmental groups and young kids mobilize millions of people into the streets. So like the the window of how we talk about this stuff is shifting. And I think that it it likely will have an impact in terms of crafting policy, but we just won't know. Yeah. And I, and I hope so. Right. But think about it. Like as someone who, you know, was all in when Al Gore's inconvenient truth came out, gave those like videos for free to all my employees. And then John McCain and Obama both said they wanted to support climate legislation and got geared up. And we spent millions of dollars on the Apollo Alliance and the Pickens plan and Al Gore's speech around how we were going to decarbonize the grid within 10 years, right? All of that happened in the span of 18 months. And we had this incredible leader who like won Indiana for like in the Electoral College, right? Like they came into office with, with almost a 60 seat majority in the Senate. And then you know, like, it didn't happen. And so like, I just I just want to make sure that we're all like, realizing that it will take a tremendous amount of work from here to make things happen. The forces against us are even more activated today than they were 10 years ago. Yeah, I agree. And while the US sees this as a political issue, uh, other countries don't see this as a political issue. And yet the U.S. has so much power as a global leader to really move others to act. Well, let's hope you're right, Catherine. You know, a, a number of major industrialized countries didn't even show up to this U.N. climate summit. So <sighs> there are a lot of mixed signals right now. And and we'll see if this incredible momentum gets turned into any meaningful policy. Let's talk about incredible momentum over in Europe, real contracts being signed, major changes underway in the offshore wind market in the UK. Within the last couple of years, auctions there have supported offshore wind projects that are competitive with new gas plants. Um, And now we have a set of projects catalyzed by a new auction that will start to compete with existing gas plants when they come online in 2023. The latest tender in the UK brought in five and a half gigawatts of offshore projects, which given today's growing capacity factors could produce about 9% of UK electricity. The, the projects are priced at under five cents, five US cents a kilowatt hour, which is a really extraordinary number. So what is driving these low prices? And, um, and as a result, will we see merchant offshore wind in the not so distant future? So Jigger, is, is offshore wind starting to loom over gas? Is it creeping up on gas in the UK? And Europe? Well, in Europe, remember, most of the gas comes from either the Russians or through uh, LNG uh, imports. And so their gas price is pegged at a much higher price than U.S. gas price. And so, yes, at, at, at five cents a kilowatt hour, um, you know, that power is cheaper than than British gas. I think that the the part that I think is still a bit confusing that we should just make sure that we're clear on is these bid prices are for uh, the generating uh, capacity. And so generally speaking, in European countries, uh, the transmission and the connection to the wind farm is socialized. And so I don't think that the five cents actually includes the full interconnection costs to the uh, the grid. It just includes the generating facility, which is still pretty amazing. But I just think that it's 
slightly apples and oranges to what we uh, quote for bid prices in the U.S. The other piece I would say is that um, you know offshore wind is generating power generally at 60% capacity factors. So these are capacity factors that are very high and really rivaling, you know, natural gas peakers or, or even combined cycle plants, et cetera, right? So um, so you're talking about very stable uh, capacities and, you know, they could be made even more stable through the addition of battery storage or other types of storage to the to the system. And so I think that 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 bodes well for the technology. And basically what you're seeing is technological innovation, right? You're talking about 12 gigawatt or sorry, 12 megawatt uh, size machines now, which are just massive. Um, and the last thing I'd say is that um, the wind industry in in the UK has done a fabulous job of linking sort of Green New Deal principles to these auctions. And so the winners of the auctions have to manufacture a lot of components in the UK and have to create, you know, the the jobs in the UK. So I think that means that the people that are paying for the power actually getting the jobs. Yeah, that's what the Labor Party has has promoted there is this people's power plan and a fund that would build 37 wooden farms, uh, raise 83 billion pounds of investment that's private and public sector investment. And a lot of that would go to um, transforming and regenerating coastal communities, but also returning 8,000 jobs across the UK. So that is uh, very much in the minds of at least the Labour Party in the UK. I just want to give a shout out to Carbon Brief, which has done some great analysis on these latest offshore wind tenders and some of the price projections um, uh, related to natural gas are coming from a carbon brief report. So we're going to link to that. And I just wanted to give them credit for some of the analysis around um, the, the economics of offshore wind. Um, finally, going to our green tech media reporting, um, you know, what we found is that the offshore wind folks really like the way that policy is structured in the UK. There seems to be a lot of happiness around how this contracts for difference um, setup works. And basically, as I understand it, they offer a strike price. And if wholesale prices are higher than that strike price, then uh, you pay the government the difference. And if they're lower, then the government pays you the difference. Um, Jigger, how does this setup work? And is it beneficial? And, and can we learn from the way the UK has set it up? Well, it works uh, exactly the way you described it. So, um, <laughs> so I think that... Great. <laughs> and so I think that... It's important to note, though, that that's how every corporate contract in the United States works as well. So when people do corporate PPAs for solar and wind in the United States, that's the role that Microsoft is playing or Apple or Google or Facebook in the United States. And so it's their balance sheet. And if wholesale prices are above the price that they sign, they actually keep the difference as well. So it's the same mechanism, just... um, just played with private sector actors in the United States. And it's one thing that we've been pushing in the U.S. that, you know, the U.S. military and the U.S. government could enter into the same types of contracts for its own electricity consumption um, to, you know, really accelerate corporate PPAs here in the U.S. The one other thing I'd say is that because of the U.K. government's uh, guarantee in this contract for differences, the debt terms are remarkably cheap. Remember, they have negative interest rates throughout Europe. And so so part of the reason we can't replicate these exact prices here in the U.S. is some of these projects are getting 1% interest rates for their debt, 
which in the U.S. you really can't get below, let's say, 5% interest rates for the for the debt. So the U.K. installed 1.3 gigawatts, but China installed 1.6 gigawatts. So they tripled their gigawatts in 2018. So the U.K. is going like gangbusters, but China is dwarfing even them. Yeah, and for so long, the offshore wind industry was considered immature in the U.K. It qualified for uh, incentives that were for immature technologies, and that's no longer the case. Uh, so uh, Jigger has offshore wind cemented itself as a, an important piece of the power mix in, in Europe and China and elsewhere? Yeah, I think that, but that I think also occurred almost 10 years ago. Not the cement, but the preparing of the cement and the pouring of the cement. The because, mixing. <laughs> because it's so easy, right? The beauty of offshore wind is putting the price of offshore wind to the side Right, there's no transmission constraints. You literally just build this thing in the middle of nowhere and then you put a transmission line directly to the city that's on the coast that uses a ton of power, right? And so you tap right into the transmission capacity in the city. And so places like New York City, for instance, are receiving power from a thousand miles away. When you put, you know, offshore wind turbines there, you can get the power from a far closer distance. And so so in general, I think people are really loving the offshore wind model because it's much easier to get the power from where it's generated to where it's consumed. On to our free electrons. This is when we pick out interesting stories, experiences, stuff that's new and novel and exciting. In Catherine's case, super wonky that we want to talk <laughs> about. So what kind of wonk are you bringing for your free electron this week, Catherine? Uh, now for something completely different. I am not wonking this week. Oh my God, I it's know. not like some FERC, FERC order no, or like no. regulatory document? Absolutely not. So my husband and I have been obsessed with this Ken Burns country music documentary series. Oh, yeah. My husband's my husband has played in bands uh, pretty much all of his life. He's in a band now. They do a lot of bluegrass and folk music. And just this documentary helped me remember that musicians have played a role in a lot of our issues, main social issues. Like Johnny Cash was very involved in Native American rights. And the first concert I ever went to was a Pete Seeger concert. And he was very involved in civil rights. I think I was three years old and I was pretty sassy about getting him to sign my album. But you know, music has been such a big thing. I remember in college, the No Nukes concert was a huge movie event. And recently, we've started to see some music about climate change, like Little Dickie's um, video and uh, with Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and Ed Sheehan and Katy Perry. And I, I think about music as being multi-sensory. So it's not just auditory, but it's kinetic. It can be visual. It it gets into your senses in so many ways to internalize what it's trying to say. And I just am really looking forward to some folks coming up with really good climate change, climate crisis music. So that's been on my mind. How delightful. I love that. I agree. <laughs> and you know what? I'm 25 years behind you because right now I'm currently watching the acclaimed 1994 series on the West from Ken Burns. So I have some catching up to do. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron? I wanted to, t to extend our conversation on offshore wind. Um, there's been this crazy project in the Northwest Territory of Australia to build 10 gigawatts of solar um, in one of the best solar radiation places in the world, and and then build an undersea cable to Singapore to actually, um, uh, you know, tell them the power. 
And it looks like it just cleared another hurdle. They got uh, someone to invest the 20 billion Australian um, to make it happen. So, you know, I don't know that it's a done deal, but it looks like we've got a whole new business model for building large, uh, uh, you know, solar and renewable energy farms. Hmm. Uh, I'm not looking at a map here, so forgive me if I'm getting my geography wrong. Don't they have a reef around there they need to be careful about? Well, you know, that reef is dying. So um, in another <laughs> uh, climate change uh, disaster, um, they, it, I think the reef's on the other side near Cairns. And so it's actually not in the way of this project, but uh, they have other reefs. Uh, but it's not the Great Barrier Reef that's in the way here. Well, this morning I was just trolling through my Twitter feed before we started recording, and I saw Bill McKibben tweet out something about Greta Thunberg. Uh, and he said, watching the attacks on Greta reminds me that industry and conservatives did just the same with Rachel Carson, the great environmental pioneer in the 1960s. She was called a hysterical spinster. Women have been long leading, and it has never been easy. And so uh, that compelled me, and I went, of course, to go check it out. So uh, I did a little poking around this morning, and... Yes, it is very true that uh, Rachel Carson was called a spinster, a communist, hysterical, emotional. These attacks came from government officials, corporations, academics. These are the kinds of attacks that a lot of women can relate to, and they've been going for a long time. Rachel Carson is, of course, the author of Silent Spring. She's someone who helped kickstart the environmental movement. And you know, we can look back now and see just how important she was in catalyzing the environmentalism that we know today. And we're seeing the same thing play out right now. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, you look at AOC and Greta and so much of the the outrage is gendered. Well, that's oh, for no, sure. it's 100%. And then I think uh, to take the optimistic side of this, though, um, you know, as Gandhi, you know, said, they ignore you first, then they laugh at you, and then they fight you, and then you win, right? So maybe we're in stage three. Thanks for listening, folks. We're going to call it there. The conversation continues on social media. Find us on Twitter. We're all there. Yell at us, praise us, scoff at us, whatever you want. Just be civil and pass the word on if you think there's an environmental uh, an energy geek in your life who would love this show. The Energy Gang is produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. It's a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And my co-hosts are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Thanks both you. Thanks for joining us. To all of you out there, we will catch you soon. Mm-hmm.